Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, September 24th, and we're talking tech without talking tech. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Jason Hall. Jason, how you doing? Happy, uh, happy Friday, Dylan. It's it's interesting. I'm sitting in a hotel that's about a half a mile from a house that I used to own, and it's for a good reason because we're in the middle of a move. I'm really happy you asked me to come on because this is a really fun topic, and I think for investors, it highlights something really, really important. Yeah, um, happy, happy that you're able to carve out some time, even with some of the chaos going on in your life. Uh, <laughs> I thrive in chaos, Dylan. <laughs> Uh, to be able to join us, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, the angle for today's show is is kind of interesting. Um, our our producer behind the scenes, Matt Greer, uh, often says, "Lead with your strongest statement," and this is my best swing for this one. Mobile apps are a wildly underappreciated look at where a company stands in owning the relationship with their customer and future proofing themselves from competition. Um, and, and the genesis for the show, Jason, I don't think I told you this as we were planning it out was I was in my living room the other night and I had one of those aha moments where you kind of know something to be true, but you've never really put it in those terms before. And, uh, I have a wired up smart house, all the bulbs in my house and lights and everything are, are, are smart. Uh, you can control them with your phone. I can control my TV with my phone when I'm playing media. Right. And I had that moment of, you know, the phone is basically the remote control for my life. Everything for your life, right. For my life, right. right? Everything funnels through there. Like whether it's interacting with my house, interacting with my friends, interacting with, uh, financial institutions, uh, restaurants, you name it. It's there. And, and it sounds like kind of an obvious statement when you start exploring it a little bit, but it's the reality. And, and I think that's why I wanted to zoom in on the app landscape in particular and strategically how important it is for a couple different industries. We're going to be talking about restaurants. We're going to talk about e-commerce. We're going to be talking about fintech uh, through that lens. I think it's easy to forget, right? It's like a tree, right? We the tree is we think of a tree as what we see, right? It's it's the trunk coming up and it's the branches extending over with the leaves, how big it is. And we miss and don't think about the fact that there's just as much tree that's just as large under the ground in its roots. And the tech that's driving so much, like you said, whether it's retail or restaurant or financial services, the app, like all of the tech stuff is just as big and it's there and it's right under our feet and we don't even see it. Yeah. And so today we're going to try to see it. Uh, And I think we can maybe start with uh, some of the more visible and, and kind of tangible elements uh, of this conversation. Um, I think the the restaurant space is one that that folks are super familiar with. Um, they probably have a decent idea of where the mobile strategy fits into how companies are approaching the relationship with their customers. Uh, there are two, I think, kind of poster childs in this space. Yeah, Brian, yep. uh, and and that's Chipotle and Starbucks, Jason. Right. They're the, they're the ones that have certainly kind of have led this. Um, and for investors that have followed these companies, it's been pretty clear. Um, I, w- I want to start with Chipotle because this transition is uh, between the two. This is the one that's more recent. Um, Brian Nickel was brought in as CEO uh, in early to 20, uh, 2018. Now, he was, came from Taco Bell, you know, it's part of Yum! Brands. He was the Taco Bell CEO. And he had been at Yum! Brands. He had been at Pizza Hut for a while. He was part of their, their marketing kind of move forward and move forward and took over um, at Taco Bell. And the company was really kind of 
lagging when he took over. Their menu was pretty stale. It was a lot of the same legacy stuff that, you know, I remember when I was a little kid. Um, and their menu just blew up. And like some of the weird, crazy things that you saw, like Flamin' Hot Cheeto Burrito, like all the stuff that they did that kind of feels kind of, kind of gimmicky, um, got a lot of the press. But at the same time he was there, he was really driving a lot of innovation in terms of better leveraging technology. So it wasn't just about gimmicks and, and so-called food innovation. But at any rate, when he was brought in at, at Chipotle, the idea was he was going to drive menu innovation, right? That was going to be the big thing he was really going to push. And we, I mean, we've seen things, right? The queso, which terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? And actually, Jason, I mean, the, the menu innovation thing, I think is an interesting point because uh, at a restaurant like Chipotle in particular, it's something that I think a lot of people saw as a major growth lever for yeah. that business. There's been so much speculation about Absolutely. You know, when they would offer breakfast, when right. they would Expanding be introducing the yep. new, uh, new features and things like that into that, um, that assembly line approach. Uh, and and that, I think it's happened to some extent, but it's not really where the growth and the revival of that company um, started. Honestly, the cadence of new 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 menu items is not significantly different than it was in the three years before or the five years before Nickel came on involved. Because again, this is a food integrity company. This is they're focused on their core menu, which is sourcing ethically raised food, trying to source organic whenever possible. Simple menu, right? So the least amount of ingredients to deliver great food as possible, right? So that's one thing they struggled with with the queso, right? Was to get that melty cheesy thing in that kind of environment where you need to have it for. 10 or 12 hours to serve somebody that might want it in it and deliver without some food additives, it's hard to do, right? Um, but then th there have been some great things. I love the sofritas, which is the tofu-based. It's, it's like, it's what I order every time I go in. Um, but here's the thing. This was when, when Nickel took over, Chipotle was still kind of dealing with the, the overhang of its, of its foodborne illness crisis. It was really a crisis that took a, a good year and a year and a half to play out. And the, his first full year, Chipotle only opened a net of 83 stores. You know, this is a company that was typically opening two to 300 stores a year. They actually closed 50 restaurants still in that first year. So there was a lot of really refocusing on Chipotle. Now, I want to, I'm just going to quote some numbers here as we go through this. And remember, this was just like a refocusing on the brand. And there wasn't a bun bunch of menu innovation happening. The first uh, first quarter he was uh, after he was hired, and it was a few weeks that they, after he was hired that they reported earnings. Comps were up two point two percent. So comps are sales growth at existing restaurants, restaurants that have been open for a year or more, right? So it's it's organic growth, I guess, is the best way to think about it. So it's not growth coming from new locations. Two point two percent is terrible, right? I mean, it really, really is, especially if you're a growing restaurant. Yeah, if you're um, a restaurant value the way Chipotle was at the time, right? Yeah, <laughs> entirely, entirely. Just it's not good because at that point, I mean, 2.2% is barely keeping up with the increase in their food costs. Uh, the, his first full quarter, so that was the second quarter of 2018, 2.8%, so a little improvement. Now, the fiscal third quarter, so by that time, he had been there about seven or eight months. Comps grew 4.4%. So you're seeing a little bit of a cadence of improvement here. Now, Chipotle also did something it had never done before. Uh, it broke out in its release, digital sales results. Digital sales results in the third quarter of 2018 were 48% higher than they were year over year and accounted for a double-digit portion of sales, 11.2% uh, of sales. 
Now let's fast forward two years, okay? The third quarter of 2020. So this is last year's third quarter. Digital sales had grown to almost half of revenue. I'm going to say that again. Digital sales accounted for almost half of revenue. In two years, went from 11% to half of revenue. That's yeah. pretty That's pretty impressive. And I think perhaps some of the the best place investments they could have made. I mean, oh, the timing. We, yeah. we know that the industry was moving this direction and that, you know, restaurant businesses that had incredibly strong mobile offerings and rewards programs were generally going to be the winners. But to have that coincide with a period where, you know, the, the pandemic is dictating that there is far more pick up and go and delivery uh, type food consumption, um, they couldn't have anticipated it, but it was where the puck was going anyways. Exactly. And that's, and it's interesting, right? So if you look at that period from his second full quarter, right? So there was enough time for the, the things he was pushing to start working their way through through the business. Chipotle's only had two quarters when comps grew less than 4.4%. And they were the first and second quarters of 2020, which is the COVID lockdown periods, right? So you think about that first quarter, comps the first two months, so January and February were double digit comps growth. And then March happened, of course. And you know it was negative comps, and then the second quarter uh, comps fell about ten percent. But during those periods, again, because at this point it was a couple of years of pushing out, really focusing on the app, right? So customers were ordering from the app In, inside the stores using those second make lines, the 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 prep lines basically in the back of the store, bringing in technology to push those orders that people were doing on their phones or on the website, to push those orders to that make ready line in the back so that it's not affecting everybody. It's 12 o'clock, everybody's hungry and there's 30 people in front of you in your line. You don't want it to be another 10 people digitally in line in front of you that you don't, you know, it affects the, it affects the throughput. It affects the customer experience. So they are leveraging that second make ready line a lot more using technology to do, to do that. But here's the key. So the only, in the only two quarters we saw comps fall, below that 4.4% growth were the two quarters of the pandemic. But like you said, Dylan, because of the timing, obviously they couldn't anticipate this, but in this in this uh, first and second quarters pandemic, digital orders made up over 60% of sales. You could almost say it saved, I don't wanna say it saved the business, that's, that's too hyperbolic, but it certainly generated substantial cash flow that the business probably would not have gotten otherwise. Yeah, and, and I think Chipotle and Starbucks, um, you know, we I said before they're the poster child of early innovation in tech and and mobile ordering. Um, you identified before they they kind of have to be because of the nature of what they do and when people are going to them, right? There are surges for both of those businesses. Chipotle, it's going to be lunch and dinner time. Starbucks, it's going to be the morning rush. Um, to be able to effectively manage uh, and and maintain the throughput that you want to and deliver on that customer experience, you need to nail the technology. Yeah, ex exactly. It makes it makes a massive difference. And the other thing too is because these are two businesses that, if if you look through the restaurant industry, there may be one or two other brands that just deliver restaurant level economics that are on par with what they do in terms of the kind of operating margins they can get at a restaurant. If you start a restaurant, Dylan, you're happy if you can get five percent operating margins. Like you're ecstatic if you can get that. Th this these are brands that get double digit operating margins at the restaurant level consistently right and it's because they keep a simple menu they're really lean with how they operate and they leverage those peak times right as much as we've seen starbucks try to do more try to expand lunch try to add things like uh beer and wine um in certain locations to 
to, to be that third place, as they say, for more day parts, they're still a morning business, right? They really, really are. And Chipotle is largely a lunch business, right? They do some dinner, but lunch is really their core. Um, and the key here is that Nickel has focused on using technology, right? To leverage what they're already really good at and get even more, get even more out of that. Yeah. And Jason, I think both of these businesses are uh, habit-forming businesses to some extent. Absolutely. Um, and, and, the, and the app ties into that, right? Yeah, it has to. And you know, you, you mentioned the pivot to digital and what we saw in terms of sales over on Chipotle's side. You know, I, I think uh, there's a pretty compelling data story there with Starbucks as well. You know, if you look at their mobile orders as a percentage of overall transactions, uh, single digit percentage in 2016. It is, uh, I think, about a quarter of their transactions uh, in 2020, and that's pretty massive scale. You know, uh, it, it, that probably does not include. Um, some uh, digital orders that are not happening through their mobile app. But um, when you think about how you know people are using this every day, um, you want it to be frictionless and you want it to be as easy as possible. Otherwise, it, it's going to be something that they don't include as a habit anymore. It, it has to be quick because to some extent, the expectation is convenience more than anything else. Yeah, ex exactly, and it's and it's interesting. I don't I don't want to say it's nefarious, but I, it's a little. I, here's my mini rant. I'll get I'll get this out of my system. I hate it when companies make their mobile sites and they do this. I don't want to say they do this with intent, but I'm going to say they do this with intent. Their mobile websites are a little crappy. So you download the app, which is slick and fast and awesome. And there's a reason they do that because they create a captive audience when they do that. When you, when you use their app, you're going to spend more money with them, right? It's inevitable that you're going to spend more money with them. And there's also the benefit of the data, right? So you think about being more effective with your marketing dollars, promotions that they can target because they know so much more about their relationship with you and how, how they can leverage that. I think it's brilliant and it's smart. And I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek kind of complaining about it. Um, but it is a powerful, powerful example of how data about your customers can be leveraged to grow your business and to be more profitable. So, Jason, uh, in prep for the show, I was looking at app rankings uh, using App Annie, checking out uh, the iOS rankings for various categories. And so, looking at food and drink, uh, Starbucks and Chipotle are there. You know, they're they're uh, you know contenders for sure. Um, but there are uh, some names ahead of Starbucks in the iOS app, and I'm curious if you have any idea who those names might be. I'm gonna guess one. I'm gonna guess one. Um... I'm going to guess Domino's, but I there's two or three that I could think of that might be on there too, but I'm just going to guess Domino's here. Yeah. I think if there was a third name that we had omitted, Domino's would probably be the one that the listeners are like, oh, come on. You got to talk about them with the tech the uh, investments. And you're right. Yep. Domino's is one. The other one, even higher up on the list, uh, shockingly, McDonald's. Yeah. It, that's that's surprising, but it's also not surprising. Um, but they're a play, at this point, they're on the on the defense. Yeah. I think, you know, but they've made, they've made heavy investments, uh, in the last couple of years, you see it in store with them with, uh, you know, being able to interact with the menu without actually talking to the cashier. It's all, you know, touchscreen. Um, but they have made a huge, huge push into mobile apps. Um, and, and they've tied a lot of their promotion. They've used some star power, um, in recent ads. Uh, they, they partnered up with BTS, the K-pop group. Uh, they have a, a meal out now, the Sweetie Meal. Um, they've used uh, collaborations with Travis Scott, Jay Balvin, um, all these custom meals. And the ad spots are driving folks to their app and to their rewards program. Um, they count more than 40 million active app users uh, in the 
six biggest markets, and they have delivery in more than 30,000 restaurants. Um, they have that's achieved incredible. incredible scale in, yeah. in short order. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit before we go to the next category here, just about exactly why this is so important for the restaurants. I, I think we've we've touched on it, but I want to bold and underline it, Jason. Okay. Yeah. So go ahead. I mean, I, I think it's it's about the app, but it's really about how the app and the rewards program work together to create the engagement opportunities for absolutely customers. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's the, again I touched on it a little bit before, but the key here is. If you if you really an app is not going to get you there, right? It's it's handy, and maybe you throw a throw a discount the first time you use the app or something like that. But you have to continue, right? Because it's 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 all about creating a relationship that's rewarding for the user, right? So Starbucks, they call it Starbucks Rewards. There's a reason that they have that name because you reward your users when they when they continue to come back. They can build points up and things like that. It's just, it's such a valuable way to leverage that data set in a way that you just can't do with, with, with any of the traditional ways that companies have tried, have tried to market. Right, Dylan? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's true. I mean, it gives you a direct line to the customer. If, if you were to tell people 20 years ago, Hey, you will be able to send a notification, uh, to someone's pocket, you know, to get them in, to engage with your brand. Uh, maybe it's an offer to be able to pick up something for free. Chick-fil-A is uh, a, a brand that is also making heavy use of this with, you know, hey, it's it's been a little while since you come to our restaurant. You know, here's a here's a free sandwich or something like that next time you come by. Um, that's, that's an incredibly compelling offer uh, for marketers. Um, and, you know, kind of tracing back to what we were saying before with throughput, all of these names we've talked about, I think, are uh, companies that, you know, there might be a little bit of a Pavlovian, you know, desire for the food where, you know, you have a certain craving for something. But at core, I think what they really offer is convenience and the the investment in the technology and, and really having a seamless app experience gets you there where it's a pretty, pretty crowded field, Jason. It, it is. And, and the other part of it, too, is it's just human nature, right? So one of the things we talk about with, with investing is, is, is developing the long-term mentality so we get past all of our human nature of short-term fears and greeds. And at the end of the day, we're, because we're creatures of habit, um, and there's a little bit of honestly, Dylan, how, how much is it that, that laziness, right? You just you, you, you pull open the app you're familiar with and you order the food that you know is going to be good and you don't put any more thought into it than that. It makes people an order of magnitude more likely to reuse that brand, right? Or shop from that company or order from that restaurant if they've downloaded their app, right? Because again, you create that captive, that captive audience. Yeah, and I think the final lesson here before we, you know, head over to the e-commerce space is I think the app relationship is increasingly important um, because it's a relationship that those brands own. And I didn't mention this when I first gave the rundown of, of the iOS rankings, but um, two non-chains are number one and number three in the category, and it's DoorDash and Uber Eats, uh, respectively. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I, I think that the restaurant brands very correctly identify that they run the risk of having a middleman step in and divert demand if they aren't the ones that own that mobile relationship. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, it and we I mean we've seen DoorDash for example has taken substantial market share in this in this space over the past couple of years, and Uber Eats is is number two right right in there as as Uber has 
has made that part of its business um, nearly as much of a priority as it's as it's made its um, you know ride sharing. It's it's incredible. Um, and again, the key is like you said, it's having who who controls the access to the customer. Right. That's that's the key. Yeah, and and it's going to be a very similar story in the e-commerce space. Uh, I'll kick us off just with a quick rundown of the iOS rankings in that category. No surprise. Number one, Amazon. Uh, number two, Sheen, which which might be a new name for a lot of people, but if you follow uh, the TikTok halls uh, and and the social media uh, kind of like viral e-commerce zone, uh, no surprise there. Number three, Walmart. Number four, Shop from Shopify. Five, Target. Six, Nike, and seven, Etsy. And Jason, I think I could do an okay job of explaining why people want a killer mobile app in this zone, but I think I'm going to let Etsy's management team do it instead. I love um, this, this. This is a quote from their Q2 2021 conference call. We're seeing significant progress prompting buyers to download the app, which represents our smallest share of visits. It has the highest conversion rate, and nearly all of this is coming from product investments rather than marketing spend. We believe success here could lead to more traffic from repeat and existing buyers shifting from paid to organic, which will enable us to spend more to acquire new buyers through higher LTV, as well as improvement to adjusted EBITDA as paid clicks and visits shift to organic. That, that's basically it. Yep. That's the explanation right there, right, yep. Jason? <laughs> yep. We build it. We we invest in building a great app. We encourage our users to download the app when they do, <clears throat> when they do, we own them and we're more profitable. I mean, that's basically what he said. Yeah. It's, it's creating a deeper relationship that you have control over. You're getting better conversion rates. You're able to spend more to acquire customers because you know that the LTV is going to be stronger down the line. Um, and, you know, thinking back on that, that rundown of companies, um, you know, Etsy is no small name in the e-commerce zone. But if you're trying to insulate yourself from competitive pressure and the likes of Amazon and Walmart, you need that direct line to your customers. Absolutely. It's just, it's, it's an undeniable part of where we're going. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting to see a company like Nike uh, in that top seven too, Jason, because throughout uh, the last couple of years, I think they've kind of had different turns with their relationships with e-commerce players like Amazon, where in the same way that, you know, some of these restaurant brands we were talking about before, um, you know, kind of, they, they benefit from the likes of DoorDash and Uber Eats and that there's, you know, built-in logistics and they don't have to worry about getting the food to the customer. Uh, there's also someone stepping in with that marketplace and creating other options that people can go to. And so, you know, a Nike by selling stuff on Amazon loses a little bit of control uh, over their brand and uh, the relationship with their customers. You think about a company like Nike, and this is where you know the term omni-channel comes up, and it's it's its business is just more complicated in terms of how customers are going to find its products. So it has to be wherever its customers are. It has to be on on the on the shelves in a Footlocker, and it also has to be on Amazon and these other large um, e-commerce players, and it has to have its own retail that it also owns. So I think I think Nike is a really good example of how companies that might traditionally not think about this space because they're not necessarily thinking about how they're selling directly realize that the i think for so many newer generations of consumers their first thought is to go look in the app store right or the google play store to find the app for the brand that they are really interested in you know they're not going to go to the website first they're going to find the app first 
Yeah, I, I think that's 100% right. And uh, this this final category that we're going to talk through here is, is the fintech zone. And, um, you know, I, I think to, to some extent, Jason, people have turned to the newer players in this space in part because of the inaction of some legacy players or the oh, slower entirely. movements of legacy players. And so just to quickly go through the top downloaded finance apps, we have the Cash App from Square, we have Venmo, PayPal, Truist Mobile, uh, and Zelle in the top five. Um, I, I can't say I'm surprised looking at that rundown. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, the the one that the one that jumped out at me is was Truist Mobile, right? So this is Truist Financial, which was formerly two big southeastern legacy regional banks that merged, came up with the name Truist, and I thought it was just the dumbest name in the world when I first heard it. But I think it was really, really sneaky clever to do it because you take these two legacy brands that might not resonate with younger consumers. And if you're a bank, right, you can spend $1,000 or more on customer acquisition through traditional methods where it can be single or low double digits when you, for, these, for these fintech companies that are acquiring. So you create a new brand that might not put, it's not going to put people off, right? And it can, and so there's kind of like this backdoor appeal that they've created, and I think it's really, really smart. Um, and it certainly surprises me that really still a regional bank is above, uh, you know, somebody like Capital One Mobile or Bank of America, which I think has done as good as anybody in the banking space to create a great digital platform. I, I'm curious, Jason. You know, we when I think of peer-to-peer payments and just being able to transfer money, um, my, it, it's hard for me to not think of the Cash App. Venmo and PayPal. I mean, yeah. um, I yep. I think uh, they they own the space. They completely do, and and I think the the banks have their uh, their offering for that. It it is not nearly as popular, and no, it's it's not. And part of that is because it's a it's a consortium owned by all the big banks, you know, or most of the big banks, and and that you know it's one of the, it's like you know it's um, management by committee you know you don't you're, there's nothing that's going to be innovative and it's going to be very hard to disrupt the these other products that are owned by companies that are laser focused on those products and pushing them forward yeah and it's easy to forget you know with with everything that you know somebody like like venmo does now or you know uh like like paypal or or you know the cash app does now um how how laser focused they were in the beginning specifically addressing the friction of getting money to your friends, you know, and they've built in all this functionality over time, but that opening is really what gave them uh, the window to become, you know, apps that have tens of millions of users, you know, tens or hundreds of millions uh, in payment volume on an annual basis. It's exactly what disruption looks like. Yeah. Identify a need, address it, expand once you have the customer relationship. Right. Right. Uh, And, you know, I I think um, this is, a little troubling in some ways if you're if you're looking at the the banking sector because uh, banks kind of have to compete on convenience now uh, in part just because you know physical branches and in person relationships just do not have the power that they once did. Yeah, that's I mean that's if if you just think about any of any of our listeners that are you know in their forties or over, you probably remember a time where you asked your parent, okay, who's what who should I talk to? What banker should I talk to? Right, and they said, well, you know, go talk to so and so and. You, you go and you sit down at their desk and you fill out some paperwork and you're there for an hour. That's not how it works at all anymore, right? You you go into the app store and you find the ones that are highest rated and you pick from that, right? It's just that that is such a complete difference. You know, the ability to just even crowdsource um, without even talking to another grown up about it. And, and then within minutes, right, you've established this financial relationship. 
And if I'm if I'm one of these businesses, it's so much more it's so much more inexpensive to acquire that customer. And then the the hard part is, of course, continuing to please them. But once you have them, these services are so sticky because the friction. Like once you set up your bill pay and like you get all of these other things set up with any of these large financial services providers, redoing that for another one, sometimes it's just not worth leaving. So once you're there, they have you for decades. Yeah. And, you know, a huge part of the banking model is identifying, acquiring a customer, being able to roll other products into that customer's account over time. You start out with checking and savings, uh, maybe at some point, uh, you know, credit card, then some point beyond that, personal loan, an auto loan, perhaps a mortgage, some point beyond that, a refi, perhaps a, a home equity loan. Um, that's where you're able to justify those very expensive upfront customer acquisition costs. And we're seeing increasingly these fintech players are playing in those spaces. I don't think it's any coincidence that Rocket Mortgage is one of the most popular ways for people to get their home loans because it's it's a mobile it's it's mobile first and it's digital first in the approach. Right, exactly. And another one's uh, better.com which went public not all that long ago um, as a as a lender. Um, same thing, right? It's an online only platform. It's super slick, it's easy to use and it's kind of the same the same tailwinds are pushing it. Um, Jason, I think we are just about at time here, but um, realize that this was this is a little bit of a different take than we normally would for for a tech show. But it was super fun to talk through. Um, listeners, excited to to hear what you guys think about this. If we should try talking through industries with through this lens a little bit more often. Um, Jason, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Yeah, this was great. One last thing, I'm going to put in a plug for Mark Andreessen's 2011 um, article: Why Software Is Eating the World. Uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal. Google it, why software is eating the world, and read it. Because again, 10 years ago, talks a lot about what we've seen happen and kind of the basis for this for this episode. Let's let's do more on this. I think it's we can get a lot deeper. Yeah, I think that article is uh, required reading or or part of the tech investing starter kit. You know, Absolutely. Where, uh, it really helps you get a grip on, on what's going on. It's prescient even now uh, to think through. So um, thanks for the rec. And, and listeners, always looking for topics for the show. So if you have anything we should be reading, anything we should be talking about, industryfocus at fool.com or at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So buyers not anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks, Tim Sparks, for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on.